A young girl is reported missing, snatched just meters away from the entrance of her school. A city is frantically searching for her, plastering her face on all media platforms. That very same afternoon, in another location, still unknown, a woman is making a cup of tea. She sits down on her couch and as she switches on her television, a familiar face flashes across her screen. The word suspect appears at the bottom of this identikit of an extremely unremarkable yet recognizable to her face. The woman stifles a gasp and immediately reaches over for her phone. On the other end of the line, the police hear a female speaking and she says, I saw the identikit and I think I know the man you're looking for. This is the story of the serial crimes of a cruel and callous man. This is the disturbing case of Johannes Vyakorbis Stein. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. First off, I just want to say my safety range has officially launched on my website, balamonsoon.com, and you can purchase this 10-piece safety kit for 375 rand. It includes essentials like a window breaker, seatbelt cutter and whistle, a key knife, a kitty knuckle keyring which replaces putting your keys in between your fingers when you walk, a 140 decibel alarm which let me tell you this little thing packs a punch, and of course another essential safety tool, your Cubiton for amplifying force. And then of course there's just your super cute items like your sanitizer or lotion holder and bottle, your lipstick or chapstick holder, your pom-pom, and of course your wristlet. And this particular keyring is also available in 11 different colors or variations. If you're able to purchase a keyring, then that would be amazing and I would be forever grateful. Every little thing is very much appreciated. But before I talk your ear off, let's get into it. Please note the following events are as per witness testimonies and accounts. However, it is not known how many more incidents occurred that have not been connected to this perpetrator. Due to the rulings in place to protect the name of victims of sexual assault from the public domain, unless they willingly put that information out there, as well as the fact that almost all of these victims were minors, majority of the names will not be mentioned. But that will not detract from the importance of their narrative. And so we begin in June of 2009, where a 15-year-old teenage girl, let's call her Al, was walking home from school in Rustenburg on a normal Monday, when her life was forever changed. A man had driven up to her, immediately threatening her, telling her to cooperate or he would rape her. He told her that if she did what he wanted her to, he would not assault her. 
He then proceeded to pull a black balaclava over her head and drive away with her. In the vehicle, he fondled her and assaulted her before ordering her to stand up. He rubbed himself against her and when he was done, she noticed there was something running down her leg. Upon closer inspection, she had realized it was semen. He used a towel and wet wipes to wipe it off and clean her up. Then, since he was now done with her, he abandoned her in a ditch. It was at this point that Al had hysterically called her mother, shocked, emotional, and in tears, begging her to please come and fetch her. Al would later state that even years later, she was terrified of going anywhere alone. But her perpetrator was only warming up. On the 11th of November 2008 and the 22nd of June 2009, he struck again with the same MO. He would don a disguise, force his young victims into his vehicle, kidnap them and often take them to remote locations before assaulting them. Four months later, the same perpetrator set his sights on a different location, Pacheftrum, which is about 150 kilometers away from Rustenburg. His next victim was a 12-year-old girl. Let's call her T. It was November 2nd of 2009, and T was heading home from a shop when a man jumped out of his vehicle and pointed a gun at her. She initially thought it was a joke, but he had then grabbed her, blindfolded her, and covered her head with a red balaclava before driving her to an unknown location. There, he told her to lie on the ground before he lay down on top of her. He then pushed in her own words, a vibrating thing against her and then between her legs. She would later recall the man not doing anything or perhaps her not feeling anything before he got up and got back into his vehicle, leaving her standing outside alone. She first thought that he was going to run her over, but then he began to drive away. She had seen a man in the distance and for a while she contemplated whether she should approach him, terrified that he too might rape her. Eventually though, she had approached him and he had helped her and taken her to her sister where they had then phoned her mom. After the assault, her father would recall how she did not cry, but he definitely could tell something was wrong. T would say that although she felt like she had overcome the trauma of the rape, she still had nightmares about this man. A man who was targeting a new location. On Valentine's Day, the 14th of February 2010, a 16-year-old girl, let's call her M, was kidnapped and raped in Funderbale Park, which is about an hour away from Potchefstroom. Her attacker had said to her that she should keep quiet or else she would get hurt. She had been on her way back from a cafe down the road when a white bucky had stopped alongside her. Her kidnapper, who had donned a disguise, which was usually a wig and glasses, had pointed a gun at her and told her to get into the vehicle. In similar fashion to his past victims, he placed a balaclava over her head and drove her to an unknown location. In the vehicle, her hands were tied to the passenger door handle. When they had stopped, he then proceeded to pull her pants down to her knees and rape her. Em would later state that even years later, she still thought about the incident and she found it hard to trust anyone. This would be a feeling that most, if not all, 
of his victims would experience. On the 7th of March of that very same year, another victim, let's call her Jay, who was 16 years old at the time, was kidnapped, blindfolded, and sexually assaulted whilst walking to a cafe with her sister. Her kidnapper was disguised in a wig and sunglasses. After she had been abducted, the perpetrator undressed her and saw that she was menstruating. He then told her that it was her lucky day. He then took out a machine and he used this to sexually assault her. After the assault, the perpetrator had kept her hairband, her purple t-shirt, her underwear and her shoes before leaving her stranded. The next girl to encounter this man was S, an 18-year-old girl from Potchefstroom. She was walking to the nearby cafe from their home with her 11-year-old brother when a bucky had stopped next to them. They had only been two doors away from their home. Although the man in the bucky had tried to grab her and drag her into the vehicle, she had bravely and successfully fought him off. S had then shouted to her brother to go and call their father before she slammed the door of the bucky shut and ran home. The perpetrator, with no number plates on his vehicle, had driven away in haste, unsuccessful. Up until this point, the perpetrator had waited months, around four to five months on average, between incidents to our knowledge at least. After this last encounter with S though, his cooling off period, which is a term used to describe the breaks that serial offenders take, shortened. It was a mere month later when not only did he attack again, but this time he targeted two girls. Perhaps his failure with S would explain why his behavior and his pattern had changed. And for his next attack, he once again targeted a different area. On the 5th of September 2010, in Ilan's Port Pretoria, a 14-year-old girl, Lazan Farmer, and her friend, a girl she had met at a party the previous evening, who was 16 years old at the time, were kidnapped while walking to the local shop to buy a cool drink. The abduction happened so quickly. Within seconds, the angry perpetrator, donning a disguise, which by now we know was part of his M.O., had held a gun to the girl's head, screaming that he would kill them. He then forced them both into his single-cab bucky. As the bucky had sped down Mossy Street in Khwakhazran, Lazan had made the decision, terrified and desperate to escape, to jump. As they drove past the Correctional Services housing facility where Lazan lived with her sister, who was a prison officer, she had taken her chance. Without saying a word to her friend, she had opened the door and thrown herself out of the vehicle, which was traveling at around 80 kilometers per hour. In her mind, she must have believed that this was the best way to not only escape her attacker, but also to get help for her friend. As her friend would later recount, she wanted to jump out the vehicle after Lazan, but the perpetrator had grabbed her, pulled the door of the vehicle shut, and kept driving. The vehicle had not slowed down for a moment, and all the perpetrator said was that he thought they were going to have a threesome. 
Hoping that Lazan had made it to safety and perhaps sought help, her friend was left alone with this terrifying man. He had then driven the vehicle to a remote location by Hinob's Rafir, where he proceeded to rape her in silence for an hour. During the ordeal, semen had fallen on the back of her t-shirt. He had then used a pocket knife to cut that part of her t-shirt out. He had then driven her to a different location, Pretoria West, where he told her to exit the vehicle, take 10 steps away, and count to 10. And with that, the vehicle sped off and he was gone. He, however, had kept her sandals and her bra. The blindfold he had made would later be handed in as evidence. Lazan's friend had then run to a garage where she found help in the form of an elderly couple who took her back home. At this point, she was racing home, in her mind thinking that Lazan was there, safe and waiting. But unfortunately, that was not the case. A pathologist would later state that no medical help would have saved Lazan, who had passed away as a result of the severe injuries she sustained while jumping from the vehicle. Her skull was fractured, and the presence of blood in her nose, mouth, ears, and airways indicated that she was alive after her injuries were sustained. Her injuries were consistent with injuries of someone who had fallen or jumped out of a vehicle. She would be the first known victim of this man's cruel and callous actions. But, unfortunately, she would not be the last. And whilst her family were receiving the heartbreaking news of her passing, her perpetrator was out at lunch with his family, cracking jokes. And just a few weeks later, on the 19th of September, this very same man abducted, raped and released a 15-year-old girl in Coltonville. And then, almost two months later, on the 31st of October in 2010, an 11-year-old girl, let's call her C, was walking home from the shop in Krugersdorp when she was attacked. She would be this perpetrator's youngest victim yet. Her kidnapper was disguised in sunglasses, a cap and a wig and he drove her to a remote location where he used a pocket knife to cut off her shirt and then molest her. After he was done with her, he abandoned her, barefoot and in the middle of nowhere. She luckily was able to walk and find a nearby farmhouse where she sought help. Her rape was reported to the Krugersdorp Child Protection and Sexual Offences Unit. The case would be assigned to a man who would be instrumental in aiding this perpetrator to be brought to justice, Captain Piet Dutoy. From the information that C had provided about her perpetrator, an identikit was able to be compiled. Warrant Officer Brits was the woman who completed the task, and she spoke to Detoy about how she had completed another identikit for an attack and assault in Coltonville that bore many resemblances to this one. Because all of these attacks had occurred in different areas and at different times, they were handled by different precincts and different police officers. But this connection that was brought up by Warrant Officer Brits allowed the officers from various locations to begin to communicate, and it was soon believed that they could very well have a serial offender on their hands. 
It was at this point that the investigative psychology unit were contacted and the available police dockets, there were eight of them at the time, were sent through to them. The individuals in this unit, which at the time was headed by the renowned Gerard Labishkachny, were trained in identifying patterns and behaviors that ultimately assist in the capture and conviction of such perpetrators. Think Mindhunter. However, with no DNA left on the scene of the crimes or the victims, it was quite difficult for those hunting the perpetrator to catch a break. But Detoy was a man up for a challenge, and he was not backing down. After conducting interviews again with all the victims mentioned in the dockets, he began to pinpoint the GPS locations of each crime so that if comparisons needed to be made at a later stage to phone records, for example, that information would be available. And as more pieces of the puzzle fell into place, the links between the cases became evident, and the confirmation that souvenirs were being taken from the scenes reiterated the belief that one perpetrator was behind it all. At this point, the media became heavily involved in the case, and the moniker The Sunday Rapist was born, even though only a portion of the attacks were committed on a Sunday. But anyways, now more than ever, the public were alert and fears were sky high as parents of teenage daughters were terrified as many of these attacks had occurred when girls had been walking to the shops or even school. And so for this reason, amongst others, perhaps the perpetrator decided to lay low until some of the heat had died down. At least that's what we believe. Oh, and he was also calculated enough to change his vehicle from a white single cab bucky to a silver double cab bucky. A few months later, in July of 2011, in Potchefstroom, a young girl was attacked, and there was also a kidnapping attempt that failed. She had not reported the attack, however, a community member who had heard what had happened to the girl had then reported the incident to the police. Although an interview was conducted with the victim, not very much was established that was new evidence, I guess besides the very important fact that the vehicle had potentially changed. Unfortunately though, it would take a tragic loss of life for this reign of terror to come to an end. On a spring day in October of 2011, two teenage girls were walking on their way to school when their lives would forever be altered. And the subsequent ending of one young girl's life would lead to the eventual capture of the man whose cruel actions had spanned so many months. But before I get ahead of myself, let's meet Louise Duval. Louise, fondly known as Wheezy to friends and family, was 16 years old and just a few days away from turning 17. She attended De Berga High School and lived with her mother, Shireen. Herself and her mom were extremely close and enjoyed spending mornings laying in together and just being in each other's company. And it was a seemingly normal school day, October 12th, a Wednesday, when she was walking to school with her best friend, Natasha Gordon. In the trial that would follow, there was a court order to not disclose the name of Louise's friend due to the fact that she was a minor at the time. However, herself and her mother expressed that they were okay with being named and photographed by the media and also went on to give interviews. 
I personally believe that given how close she was to Louise, she would not want to be just a nameless face in the narrative of Louise's final hours. And so, for that reason, I have included her name in this narrative. Just 800 meters from the school gate, the two girls had been talking excitedly and Louise had been showing Natasha her new earrings and applying some lotion to her legs, which she had forgotten to do that morning. Their interaction was cut short, however, when a man in a silver double cab Hilux Bucky had pulled up next to them. He exited the vehicle and grabbed Louise, a gun in his hand. But Natasha was not giving up her friend without a fight. She had grabbed onto Louise, but the man told her if she didn't let go, he would shoot her. The last image Natasha would have of her friend was Louise frantically gesturing through the window for Natasha to run and go call for help. As she ran, the vehicle sped away. Shireen, who was just drifting back to sleep, was awoken by a banging on her front door. She opened to see a frantic Natasha, who explained to her that Louise had been kidnapped. The police were called and shortly arrived at Louise's home. Once again, Officer Brits was called to compile an identikit based on Natasha's description of the perpetrator. Before the task was complete, she realized that it bore much resemblance to the perpetrator that they were already looking for. This completed identikit was then shared along with missing posters showing a teenage girl with a bright smile and kind eyes in a school uniform. But although Louise would be found just three hours later, it would be a heartbreaking discovery. At around 11am, Jeanette Ferreira went to check out the smoke that her brother Tianus had spotted on the edge of their farm in Marapeng, Michalisburg. It was a wooded area, so she had to park a short distance away. As she approached the clearing, she saw that the flames were out, but the grass was burnt. And in the center of the burnt patch was what appeared to have been a body, burnt beyond recognition. A later autopsy, as well as testimony from forensic pathologist Dr. Gina Rao, would highlight that Louise was still breathing when she was set alight. A pair of earrings and a belly ring was all that survived the blaze. And so a different unit had been called out, because after all this was a different jurisdiction, a different area to the previous cases. The forensic investigations were underway, and soon neighbouring police stations were being called to ascertain whether any missing persons reports matched the items and identifying features of the discovered body. Shireen would later that afternoon identify her daughter by her jewelry. Although Louise had not survived her ordeal, the discovery of her body would bring the reign of a serial rapist to an end. And here's how the next few hours played out. That very same afternoon, in a home in an undisclosed location, a woman was making a cup of tea. She sits down on her couch, switches on her television, and a familiar face flashes across her screen. The word suspect appears underneath this identikit of this fairly unremarkable but kind of recognizable face. The woman stifles a gasp and immediately reaches for her phone. On the other end of the line, the police hear a female voice say, 
I saw the identikit and I think I know the man. And so, as the hunt for the perpetrator intensifies, a vital piece of the puzzle has been provided. To this day, the identity of the caller remains unknown. Which is also why I always say, if you see something, say something. Because you can make a massive difference. After narrowing down the search using the suspect's name, the team had 17 individuals across the country. The search results were further narrowed down by the fact that the witness had provided a second name as well as a location for the perpetrator. After searching police records, one man in particular stood out because of a prior conviction against him. But more on that in a little bit. On the grounds that this particular man could be the Sunday rapist, his property was scheduled to be searched. After a search of the suspect's property was conducted, a pink and grey school bag was found in a black bag in the back of a silver bag. On the bag were stickers with the name Louise Duval on them. In the bag was also a cell phone cover, and in a nearby trash can, they would find a SIM card, which would later be linked to Louise. With enough evidence to warrant an interior search, the police continued. Little did the team realize that at one point, the suspect had been right down the street. You see, he had been on his way back home after picking up his son from school in his family's other vehicle, a gold Mercedes-Benz. After avoiding the scene that was his home, he had dropped his son off at a family friend's home before calling his wife. Apparently, during this phone call, he confessed to kidnapping another girl and admitted to being a monster. He would also speak to his brother as well as another friend, confessing to the murder he was being sought for. And after tracking his cell phone, it was discovered that he was on his way to KwaZulu-Natal, where his brother coincidentally lived. And so it was that Piet Dutoy from the Krugersdorp Police Family Violence, Child Abuse and Sexual Offences Unit eventually would speak to the man's brother. During this conversation, he would tell him to convince the suspect in question to get in contact with Dutoy, as it was in his best interests. And would you know, the next morning at 4am, Piet received a phone call. The man on the other end, you may ask? Well, the suspect that everyone was searching for, Johannes Jokobus Stein. The man claimed to be sitting in his car by Margate Beach, which is in KwaZulu-Natal. Remember, he had fled Gauteng when he realized that the net was closing in on him. And so, as he sat in his vehicle, he told Dutoy that he was going to commit suicide. And so, for almost a full hour, Piet became a listening ear and counselor to the alleged serial rapist and murderer he was hunting. He recalls Jakobus's temperament as being anxious, emotional, and confused. He, however, did his very best to keep the man calm. This way, he was trying to ensure that at least the families would have some sort of closure and peace. Whatever he ended up saying worked though, because at around 5am, Jokobus ended up turning himself in at the Margate police station. He was arrested and confessed his crimes. He also divulged where he had hidden and disposed of Louise's items like her house keys, around 18 kilometers away from where her body had been left. The kidnapper and murderer of Louise Duval had been captured. 
and very soon it would be confirmed that her attack was just the tip of the iceberg. And as proceedings for the case and the trial began, Louise's family held her memorial. On the day, the hall was full of bunches of pink and white flowers, and packed with friends and family, all gathered to say their farewells to the bright and bubbly young girl. A haunting rendition of Over the Rainbow, played on the saxophone, was heard during the service, as Louise was described as being one of the brightest girls in her class. She was said to have received certificates for two distinctions, as well as her prefix blazer the following week. I thank you for the love you have shown me, but now it's time I travel alone. So grieve you must, then let your grief be comforted by trust. It's only for a while that we must part, so bless the memories within your hearts. After the service, the family moved to a marquee and outdoor space, where white doves were released. A photograph captures a moment of Louise's mom, Shireen, kissing a single white dove before releasing it. And as the doves flew away and the tears streamed from the faces of her loved ones, Louise was laid to rest. Gone, but never to be forgotten. Although it felt as though the hardest part was over for the family, the long road to justice was just beginning. After his arrest and transport back to Gauteng, Jakobus gave a full confession to a magistrate, confessing to the murder of Louise Duval, as well as other charges laid against him. His wife had also started divorce proceedings against him right after his arrest. Initially, photos and videos of Jakobus were banned due to concerns that identity parades could be compromised. However, when the trial eventually began in 2012, that order was withdrawn. And it was ruled that only the identity of the minor witnesses or those who had been minors at the time was to be respected. And that is a pretty stock standard rule. Very soon though, Jakobus became a fan of the attention he was receiving in the press. Think Rosemary and Lovu. He even made a joke with one of the photojournalists about receiving one rand for every photo taken. Okay. So although he had initially confessed in front of a magistrate, when it came down to it, he pleaded not guilty to all of the 37 charges laid against him. These included kidnapping, rape, sexual assault, murder, attempted kidnapping, and an attempt to commit a sexual offense. Yep, he basically retracted his confession and now he was pleading innocent. During court sessions, he appeared quite calm, holding an Afrikaans Bible, which his brother had given him, tightly in his grip. And so the trial began, and with it, the witnesses, as well as the victims of this suspected Sunday rapist, would come to the forefront. Out of all the victims who testified, only one decided against testifying in camera. For those unfamiliar with the term, it basically means testifying in private with the media and the public excluded. In some cases, this would involve a two-way glass being used where the public, the judge, the prosecutors would be able to see the witness, however the witness would not be able to see the courtroom. Besides the testimony of his victims, there were many others that were called to the stand. Amongst them, Hermanus Mulder, an elderly man who rented the back room of Jakobus's home. 
He recalled how on the day of Louise's kidnapping, he had seen a woman in the back of Jacobus's bucky. Although the vehicle had been purposefully reversed into the parking lot so as to obscure vision, Hermanus had still caught sight of the back of a woman's head. She didn't sit upright in the bucky, but rather she entered the vehicle and appeared to have gotten down on the seats. This was common with Jacobus, as he would often make his victims lie down on the seats so as to avoid passers-by and other vehicles spotting them. Hermanus's emotions had overcome him whilst he was on the stand, and pointing to Jacobus, he had shouted, Das die Bluxem, which basically means it's that scoundrel in Afrikaans. Shireen, Louise's mother, would also take the stand and testify to the impact that the loss of her daughter had on her life. During the trial, she came face to face with the man accused of taking her daughter's life. She had said, My life is shattered. I can't cope. I can't function. My heart is broken. I'm on medication. Besides the emotional toll that the loss had had on her, the financial burden she faced only grew. After her daughter's death, she ended up losing her job. And at the time of her taking the stand during the trial, she was on the verge of losing her home as she no longer had a source of income. She had walked up to Jakubas during a courtroom break and said, Yaku Stein, I am Louise Duval's mother. You killed my child and you will pay for what you did. During the trial, further portions of the disturbing story of what had happened to Louise on that fateful day would come to light through the different testimonies given. And although initially he had confessed and evidence was found in his vehicle on his property, his story would change and he would also place blame on the team that were instrumental in his arrest. Jakubas claims that he was forced and threatened into making an incriminating statement. His legal team also argued that he was provoked to escape by being left in an idling police van. Jakubas said that he was told he was young, he should just plead guilty and go on. He then stated that he only admitted to the crimes because of his prior conviction and that he actually didn't even know Louise. Much later during the trial, a letter was obtained that Jacobus had sent to a female friend. Within this letter, he had mentioned how he forced Louise to perform oral sex on him. She, in his own words, did it well too, definitely not her first time. His words from paper to the public shocked her family. The woman that he had wrote the letter to would also go on to state that Jakobus was a helpful and friendly person and that the crimes committed could not have been committed by the Jakobus she knew. In his letter, he had also said that Louise had not put up much of a fight, but he did not elaborate on that. Jakobus went on to testify about his marriage stating that it deteriorated since 2011 and this is why he turned more to the comfort of prostitutes, even bringing them into the family home. He used this explanation as a segue into how on the day of Louise's abduction and murder, he had brought a woman to his home. I went looking for a good time. I went to find a prostitute to get something I don't get at home. 
But he had apparently felt too guilty to bring this woman into his marital bed. And so he had taken her to an abandoned resort in Marapeng, coincidentally extremely close to where Louise's body was discovered. Yeah, there always seem to be a lot of coincidences with Jacobus. The lady in question, who was actually someone that he worked with during his community service, more on that extremely soon, would testify that not only had she never been to his home, but she most certainly did not sleep with him in an abandoned holiday resort. Other witnesses who he claimed as alibis would also testify that they were not with him on the day in question. He provided numerous alibis, from various prostitutes to friends, but when it came time to call them to the stand, he said that they had refused to testify or he could not reach them, and he was not going to force anyone to testify. Hmm, interesting. As he was still denying his involvement as the Sunday rapist, he claimed that it was a mere coincidence that the both of them drove the same vehicle, were in the same areas on the same days, and that the Sunday rapist had dumped Louise's items in his trash bins. Yeah, makes so much of sense. Seems highly plausible and likely. Never fear though, by the end of the trial, the story would once again have changed. And then his wife testified. Wait, rather his ex-wife. She testified in camera to Jacobus calling her on the 12th of October, the day of Louise's murder, to tell her that he had kidnapped another girl. He was sorry and that he was a monster. He had followed that shocking statement to her with the notion that he was leaving because he felt confused and she should know that there would be police at their home and she should tell them that he was guilty. It was only during his wife's testimony that Jacobus cried, put his head in his hands and constantly wiped his eyes. Testimony by expert witnesses was provided in regards to triangulating the location of Jacobus's phones, he had two of them, during the various incidents. By studying the patterns, they were able to confirm the mobile phone's presence in the vicinity of all nine kidnappings. Johannes Jakobus Stein was found guilty in the South Gauteng High Court on 33 charges of the 37 charges brought against him, including murder. Two charges were changed from rape to sexual assault, and one was changed from murder to culpable homicide. Jakobus was found guilty of murdering and abducting Louise, however, he was found not guilty of raping her, as there was insufficient evidence to prove it. The presiding judge had said that the state had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Jacobus was guilty of farmer's abduction and culpable homicide. After the judgment, Jacobus was tearful, saying that he would make a statement another day. He said there was a lot that people did not know. He then cried when speaking about his wife saying that she didn't even talk to him. Johannes Jakobus Dane was sentenced to five life terms in prison with an additional 170 years. Judge Colbe said that she did not believe he could be rehabilitated and that the community should be protected from him. She said that Jakobus was a self-confessed liar who admitted to lying not only to his wife but also his boss. She had stated, 
There is no justification for your conduct. Two girls lost their lives. Those who did not have lost their proper lives. After hearing his sentence, family members who were attending the court proceedings called out to Jakobus, Papa wacht for you, which basically translated means daddy's waiting for you. Lizanne Farnwa's mother broke down in court after the sentence was read. For Louise's sister Jessica, the judgment was bittersweet because although he had been convicted for murder, he was not convicted for the rape of her sister due to the lack of evidence given the state of the body. Louise's mother Shireen in a letter to Jacobus said, you are the most despicable, disgusting human being. You've managed to destroy my life and those of many young girls. You took her life in the most horrible way. She told him that she wished he never found peace and forgiveness in that Bible that he carried daily to court. In her last sentiments to him, she said, I take pleasure in knowing you'll never know your son. I'll miss my daughter's matric dance, 18th and 21st birthday, her wedding, first baby, but my daughter is dead. Your son is alive. She mentioned his son also because of the strange and ironic fact that Louise and his son shared a birthday. And on the other side of it, Jacobus had said to journalists, It is harder for me than for the victims. Nobody was there when I wept before the Lord. I'm sure you don't even need me to say anything, so... I'll just let that sit for a while. Jakobus Stein was sent to Leokop prison to serve his sentence. And one would believe that that was that, right? But if you're familiar with the narratives that I share, you will know that there is always more to the story. And more to the story there was. In January of 2014, wardens at Leokop prison foiled an escape attempt of none other than, you guessed it, Jakobus Stein and another man, Henry Ocker, a Nigerian terrorist. Yeah, he's rolling with a great crowd now. The wardens had found marks on the bars of the cell that the two individuals shared with five other prisoners and realized that something was afoot. Shortly after that incident, Jakobus was moved to CMAX, a maximum security prison in Pretoria, where he remains to this day. So you've heard about his crimes as well as the horrific incidents with his victims. But now it's time to learn more about the man behind the macabre. Johannes Jakobus Stein, known to his friends as Yaku, lived in the leafy suburb of Volro Park with his wife, Melanie, their young son and three dogs. Prior to that, they had lived in a gated complex in Krugersdorp. He was 33 years old and employed full-time at a carpentry company whilst his wife was employed at the University of Johannesburg. According to those who knew the family, the couple were religious and attended their local Seventh-day Adventist church. There was never any reports of loud music or noise from their house. They would often receive prayer groups from the church in their home too. This is also why so many refused to believe the allegations when they hit the media. A reverend from the church they attended would later say, They had bries without a drop of alcohol. He spoke only pure Afrikaans, and I almost want to say was a pillar of the community. To the public eye, the happily married couple with their young son were the picture-perfect family. But just beneath the surface, the dark truth lay. 
According to the police reports, explicit adult material featuring children was found on Jakobus's computer. During his trial, he admitted to being addicted to pornography and child pornography. He had likened his addiction to that of cigarettes, saying that it interfered with his work. On his property after the search, burnt caps and wigs which he had used as disguises along with adult toys that he had used to assault some of his victims were discovered. Remember that prior conviction as well as the community service that I briefly mentioned? Well, here's how it ties in. It would come to light that in 2007, he was arrested after abducting and sexually molesting minors at a bus stop in Rodeport. And that's not even the most disturbing part, there's more. He was convicted and sentenced to three years. However, that sentence was just commuted to community service. And if that's not bad enough, here's the kicker. The community service was to be done on Sundays at a hospital. A hospital that is frequented by all age groups. I don't even have words at this point. So yeah, he was given cleaning up duties for raping children. I'll just let that sink in. It will also turn out that only his wife had been aware of his record. The following year, it is thought that his reign of terror began in November of 2008. Whether there are more victims that have not come forward, we cannot know. After the trial was complete and a sentence was given, it came to light in an admission by Jacobus himself that when he was only 15 years old, he had apparently first raped a girl. This rape had not been mentioned throughout the trial. After being questioned if all of his assaults had been revealed during proceedings, he answered quite shortly that there were cases from years back that they just simply couldn't find the dockets for. And that's all he would say. Well, that's besides the conversations he had with the press when the families of the victims weren't around, that is. Later, Jacobus would admit that he had kidnapped Louise and then eventually murdered her. When asked why he chose to burn her body, he said it wasn't impulsive, he just couldn't decide what to do with her. He said, I'm not sure why I killed her, it's a long story. He would then claim on multiple occasions that he was writing a book and that all the information that the press wanted to know could be found in that book. Luckily, as the law stands, no one convicted of a crime can profit off that crime in any way or form, whether it be movies, documentaries, books, etc. Point is, Jacoba said that he began writing his book when he first arrived in prison and that by the time he was done, it was going to be a bestseller. He also believed that he would be rich after the book was published. Yeah, that's how his mind works. And so, as with every episode, we're never happy with the surface, so let's dig even deeper. Given the fact that it appears that for Jakobus, lies flow easier than beer at a football game, one cannot place too much emphasis on his self-confessed narrative. Let me explain. He stated in an interview that he had never been molested as a child and that he had even visited a hypnotist to confirm this. Also, according to Jacobus, he lost his virginity at the age of 12. He then claimed that a psychologist later told him that this was when he reached his sexual peak and this was why he preferred girls of that age. Yeah, I wouldn't place my money on a mental health professional saying that, 
But anyways, clinical psychologist Franco Fisser testified as an expert witness to the fact that Jacobus could not be rehabilitated, had very little control over his urges, and could not stop his criminal habits. He also said that Jacobus scored high in regards to the presence of narcissistic and psychopathic traits. He further stated, The chances that Stain would commit sexually violent crimes again in the future are high. Stain is a psychopath, habitual liar, manipulative, feels little or no remorse for what he did to the victims of his crimes, and has a strong need for control and power. He attested that Jacobus did not take responsibility for his thoughts, behavior, and conduct, constantly shifting the blame. This is also evident as at points during the trial, Jacobus kept gesturing over to his estranged wife saying, do you know how it feels when the woman you love pushes you away and says she doesn't want to have sex with you? Don't you think this led to my doing such deeds? I get no satisfaction at home. Yes, you heard me correctly. He blamed his wife for his actions and behaviors especially towards Louise. It was evident that he held a deep resentment and anger towards her, which Fissa believed could possibly even endanger her life. Jacobus consistently viewed himself as the victim. I mean, this is evident in that after the sentencing, he told the journalist that he was suffering more than his victims. I'm sorry, narcissist says what? But for those of you who are aware of the behaviors of someone with narcissistic tendencies, this makes perfect sense. Jacobus refused from start to finish to admit the problem was within him and not as a result of others' actions, behaviors, or lack thereof. He also showed no remorse for his behavior, common within those with psychopathic traits. That also explains the consistent lying. I mean, if there was one thing that was a constant throughout the trial, it was that Jacobus would be lying. In the holding cells, he had casually said, I don't know whether I would have murdered again, but I would probably have abducted another one or two. His actions were planned and calculated. He carried lubricant in the cubbyhole of his vehicle, instructed girls to use mouthwash or drink alcohol to remove traces of DNA from their mouths, and use wet wipes when he was finished. He would also ensure that he used condoms or simply did not ejaculate. Jacobus's behavior towards his victims echoed the sentiments shared by Fisser and other experts on the case. In many cases, the act of rape itself is seen as a desire for power and control. And this is evident within Jacobus's actions. Expanding upon his manipulation and pure narcissism, he would tell his victims that it was their lucky day and that they were going to enjoy the actions he was doing. He also kept mementos or souvenirs from many of the incidents, sometimes a bra, sometimes underwear, sometimes even a hair tie. These were more than likely used for him to relive the experiences and the feelings that he had felt during the attacks and assaults. Jacobus's callous nature, his lack of remorse, his addiction to child graphic material, and his ability to lie all made him a terrifying enigma. For all the girls who encountered him, their lives are forever altered 
marked by the memories of his actions. For Lausanne Farmer and Louise Duval, their young lives were cut short, never getting the chance to get married, find love, have children, or even finish high school. Without realizing it, Louise played a major role in bringing an end to the reign of terror of one man. But there are others, too many actually, like him, preying upon the vulnerable in society. And this is why every voice matters. Every action counts. If you see something, say something. Tell someone. Whether it's an anonymous phone call, picture, or letter, your actions have the power to change a narrative forever. Until next week, my loves, stay safe, stay vigilant, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!